Welcome to the sermon podcast of Redemption Church. The following sermon is by Pastor Gary Alloway. confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption to sonship. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship, and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offering will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the children by physical descent who are God's children. But it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on humans' desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raise you up, for this very purpose, that I might display the power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what it is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory, even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles? As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people, and I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. 
What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursue the law as the way of righteousness have not attained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written. See, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Word of the Lord. All right. So one of the gifts of modern times is this belief that we can pluck any singular verse out of the Bible and have it make sense. We've kind of come to this idea, right, that like you could just pluck any single one and you would automatically know what it means. You would understand what its purpose was. And, you know, you, you should probably actually even have like a devotional experience with it. Like it should connect you to God. And this approach might work with like the Proverbs, right, where the Proverbs is just this like independent list of bits of wisdom. Though even the Proverbs actually sometimes like contradict each other. So it's helpful to read larger sections and kind of let them bounce off each other. It definitely doesn't work with the Psalms. You can do it with the Psalms, but sometimes the psalmist actually like changes his mind halfway through. He starts off saying one thing and says, no, 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 but the truth is actually over here. And so if you're plucking a singular verse out of the Psalms, you might actually be saying the opposite of what the psalm is trying to get at. And as for narrative, for stories, the stories of the Bible, like no one would ever pluck one page out of Huck Finn, right? And be like, no, I definitely understand Huck Finn. Like, you'd read the whole thing, right? That's how it works. There might be certain passages or chapters that stand alone better than others, but generally, we wouldn't think that you could just pluck anything out of a story and have it work. Which brings us to the book of Romans. The book of Romans is a series of arguments, right? Paul regularly asks rhetorical questions and then shoots them down later. Paul sets up straw man arguments and then goes in a different direction. Paul will set up one side of an argument and then negate it further on. So you can cause lots of problems if you just pluck a verse out and try not to see, and don't see it in its context. And of course, Paul's original audience would have heard this book end to end. They would have sat down and read the entire thing end to end. It's only in modern times that we have chapter breaks and verses that kind of split it up and make us think that these things can exist independently of each other. Because when we do this to the book of Romans, sometimes we really do damage to Paul's larger arguments. Um, we've already seen this in chapters 1 through 3. If you're here when we went through these sections, right? Romans chapter 1 through 3 is, a, is one big argument. So if you read Romans chapter 1, you might get this. Romans 1, the people of this world are terrible. Right? That's kind of what Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And he's saying that to his largely religious audience. They go, yeah, the people of this world are terrible. But what's Romans chapter 2 say? You are terrible too. And he swings it right back and he puts it right to them and says, you know, everyone is actually falling before God. But if you keep reading in Romans chapter 3 and 4, you hear this. God has adopted you both. So again, it's really helpful if you read the whole thing and let Paul's ideas flush themselves out and see the ways that these ideas bounce off each other. 
Romans 9 to 11 is kind of the same thing. We just read Romans 9 tonight because it's long and because it's really thick, but it's really actually helpful to see that these are part of one larger argument going on, Romans 9 through 11. And so I'm going to kind of like lean forward into Romans 11 tonight because it's actually really helpful to understanding what we just read. Romans 9, Paul pivots. He's given us this big picture of salvation in Romans 8, and now he's going to come back to this question. What about Israel? How is it that the amazing good news of Jesus has come, that the Messiah has come, and the very people that he was supposed to come to seem to have missed out? That this story runs through Israel all the way from Abraham, and yet most Jewish people have chosen not to follow Jesus. Has God's world failed? Paul asked this question. Have God's promises failed? What does God owe Israel, his covenant people, his chosen people? And Paul's going to use three, uh, three chapters to answer this question, Romans 9 through 11. And again, if you read them in isolation, some bad things can happen. One, uh, if you read Romans 9 in isolation, one thing you, that people end up in is double predestination, this idea that like, God decides before the beginning of time who's going to heaven and who's going to hell. If you grew up in Calvinist circles, you might have been raised with idea, this idea. And I feel like it's my duty to tell you that this has not actually been the mainstream view of the church. The historical orthodoxy of the church has said, no, that's not actually reflective of the character of God. So, I want you to kind of leave that one behind. And if you're unfamiliar with that, you're better off. Don't worry about it. The other problem of reading Romans 9 as isolation is God can seem like kind of a jerk. I don't know if you guys picked that up. This is a pretty harsh passage. God can come off as arbitrary or capricious. God saves who he wants to save, condemns who he wants to condemn. What else? And if you don't like it, God doesn't really appreciate your objections. Who are you, oh man, to talk back to God? Who is the clay to talk to the potter? If you find that view of God to be unappealing, I think you're actually right to do so. Because it's not actually the God of the Bible. And it's the reason we actually need to hold this chapter together with the larger argument. So there's a larger movement here, and I want to just kind of spell it out. Romans 9 says this, God is free. God can do whatever God wants. And that's the important thing we get from this passage that, that, um, that we read already. But if you follow through to Romans 11, it will say this. In his freedom, God chooses grace. God is free, and yet God chooses grace. Romans 9 starts by telling us that God can do whatever he wants, that God doesn't know Israel anything. But when we get to Romans 11, and we get to the conclusion, here's what he'll say about Israel. All Israel will be saved. He never tells us quite exactly how that works, what exactly that means, and if anybody tells you they know exactly what that means or how that applies to the modern nation of Israel, they're making stuff up. But this is the banner headline. <laughs> All Israel will be saved. He goes on to say this. Verses 28 to 32. 
As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you who were at one time disobedient to God have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too now have become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he might have mercy on them all. And like all things Paul and Romans, that's a really complicated way of God saying, he's going to finish the story with Israel. What God has started, God will finish. He's not going to abandon them. God has given this promises to this people and he will bring it to conclusion. One way or another, whatever it means, all Israel will be saved. God is free. But God chooses grace. And while he points this dynamic specifically at Israel, like Paul always does, he points it back to his Gentile audience, a.k.a. us as well, and says, you know, God doesn't have to love you. God is free. But in his freedom, do you know what God chooses? You, even in all your mess, even though it's not always clear what God gets out of it, even though we don't deserve it, even though it pains God to walk with us through our sin, even though it cost God the cross, God chooses us. Not because he has to, but in freedom, God chooses grace. God is free, but God chooses grace. Amen? I'm going to take you back through this passage just a little bit, because there's a lot here. And if you remember the original context of this book, right? Paul is writing to this community in Rome. It's somewhere around 56 A.D., and the, the community in Rome is this collection of Jewish house churches and Gentile house churches. And they aren't getting along. The Jewish Christians at the time are insisting on the law. They're saying, we're God's chosen people, so you need to join us. Like, that's, that's how it works, right? You have to join this story that God has already created through Israel if you want to be in on the thing that God is doing. The Gentile Christians, on the other hand, seem to be going the other way and saying, like, God is left behind Israel. They're the relic, right? They're these people stuck in this Old Testament superstition. God has chosen us now. He has left behind his promise to them. And both of them are using this idea of election, right? This idea that God calls a people. And they're using it to stand over each other. They're using it to stand against each other. Meanwhile, for Paul, he gets into this, and he says, "There's the, he gets into this question of what to do with Israel. What does it mean if the majority of the Jewish people have rejected Jesus?" And he has both uh, scriptural and emotional problems to deal with here. Um, what's it say about God that, that uh, this has happened? And he begins with this very personal appeal, right? For Paul, this is personal, right? He's not talking about a theological idea. He's talking about his friends. He's talking about his family. He's talking about the people he studied with. He's talking about the people he loves most. And he's talking about what it means that they have rejected the love of God through Christ. And this is what he says. I speak the truth in Christ. 
I am not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Theirs is the adoption of the sonship. Theirs is the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs. From them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah, who is God over all, forever praised. Paul says when he looks at Israel that he has great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. That he would allow himself to be cut off for the sake of them coming in. Which sets a powerful example for us, right? When we think about those who seem to have rejected Christ. When we think about those who we think of as the enemies of God. Paul's posture is not one of hostility, it's not one of antagonism, it's not one of screw those guys. He weeps. He laments. He mourns. So just imagine that. Imagine if we took that on, right? What if that were the posture of every Christian in America that we, that we mourned over those who seem far from God rather than turn them into enemies? But Paul moves past this, right? He moves past this personal thought and into the scriptural. And he takes us through this whole tour of like the Old Testament to show that what is happening there in the first century is no different than what has happened in the past. He takes us back to Abraham and reminds us that though the promise is given to Abraham's descendant, the promise runs through Isaac and not Ishmael. And the promise runs through Jacob and not Esau. And the promise to Israel has never just been a biological thing, right? No one is entitled to grace just because of who their parents are. And so in the same way, the first century Jewish people weren't entitled to God's grace just because of their birth. And Paul takes us through the story of Exodus and Pharaoh and the golden calf and how God uses the disobedience of people to expand his glory, that God uses even disobedience and even rejection of him to further the kingdom of God. And this is what God is doing now in first century Israel. In their hardening, the gospel goes out. And Paul reminds us of the freedom of God, that he is the potter and we are the clay, and he can do what he wants. And Paul reminds us that even if only a remnant is saved, this too is by the grace of God. As Isaiah says, unless the Lord Almighty had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom, we would have become like Gomorrah. Each of these images can be softened, right? If we go back and look at them in their context, if you look at it in different ways, you can kind of soften them up so they don't feel so harsh. But on some level, I want us to, to receive them in that place. God doesn't owe Israel anything. The very fact that he chose them is grace, the very fact that he sustained them is grace, the very fact that there is a remnant is grace, the very fact that some have come to know Christ is grace. And if God wanted to take it all away, God would be free to do so. And not only would God be free to do so, God would be just in doing so. God is free. God can do whatever God pleases. Before we move on to point two, 
important to let that settle. God is God. And yet, in this freedom, what does God do? God chooses Israel. God chooses grace. God chooses us. Let that both humble and soften you. God is free. And in his freedom, God chooses you. So how do we live this out? How do we put this on? First of all, Romans 9 is a reminder that no one is entitled to God's grace. Sometimes I think I treat God like a 12-year-old treats their mom. You remember when your mom drove you to the mall when you're 12 and, you know, you're like, you have to love me, mom. You're my mom, right? Like, you know, your mom is expecting some thank you and you're like, whatever. Of course you drove me to the mall. You're my mom. You know, we think our mom owes it to us just because she's our mom, which as a parent I've learned that is like kind of true, but you also still choose every day to love. Sometimes we treat God that way. You know what I mean? Like God has to love me. That's like part of the terms and conditions of being God, right? Does anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And that's good on some level. We've, we've come to the idea that like God is love, and that is in the nature of God, and that is what God chooses to do. And yet at the same time, we can kind of become a snotty 12-year-old towards God if we're not careful. Where we're no longer expressing gratitude towards God, but just kind of like, a, uh, like a, just an unappreciation, just a sense of entitlement, just a sense of like, of course you love me, you're my mom. So this passage is a little bit of a wake-up call in that regard, of just a reminder of like, no, God doesn't have to love you. God chooses to love you. And that does make a difference in our posture towards God. This is also a reminder of who it is, a reminder of who it is that has chosen us. I have a friend who, who runs a ministry in another state, and I love his ministry, and I love him, and so I hope he never listens to this, because I'm going to pick on him for a second, and if he does, I'll apologize. Um, but they were using this like icon in their church for a while, and there's a, um, a rainbow over a poop emoji, and they called it the holy poop. Um, they used a term harsher than that, but I won't use it here, because, you know, we're recording and all that good stuff. Um, and it was meant to be representative of God's grace. And like, there's part of me that I'm like, I should love this, right? Like, I call us sinners and skeptics. Like, I, I believe God's grace really goes into the mess. But what I didn't like about it is it seemed to make God cute. And what, what makes grace matter to me is, is who it comes from. You know, God loves me and chooses me, but it's not just any God, right? This is like Yahweh of hosts. 
This is Yahweh of hosts who threw down Pharaoh and his army. And this is the God of Israel who slayed the Assyrian army. And this is Almighty God who put the planets in their place. And this is the God who tells Moses he cannot see his face or otherwise he might die. This is the God who's so holy that standing in his very presence means we might die. And this is the God who chooses us. This God can do as as he pleases, right? He could crush us and he could crush his enemies and he could crush the earth. But what does God choose to do in his freedom? He chooses us. God can be very intimate, right? We can have a very intimate experience of God. And God can be very personal and God can be very kind. But we should never let God become small. We are saved and loved by a big, big God. Amen? God is free. God is holy. God is powerful. God is almighty. And it is this God who chooses grace. It is this God who chooses you. Lastly, I just want to say, the subtext that sits under this passage It's the same subtext that sits under the whole book of Romans. Just get over yourself. Like, Paul is writing to two groups of people, two groups of Christians that can't get along. And like pretty much every other passage in the book of Romans, underneath it all, there's this message of like, hey, get over yourself. You're not actually that great, right? God didn't pick you because you're awesome. God chose you fully and completely in grace. And so when you look at your neighbor who you can't get along with, when you start to get judgy towards one another, when we can't seem to work it out, we need to go back to the sense of none of us stands over our neighbor, but each of us stands under the grace of God. Nobody's entitled to God's grace. Nobody won it. Nobody won the contest for winning God's favor, but instead we are all here by grace. It doesn't mean we can't work out hard things. It doesn't mean at times we can't even point out sin, but we do so from a completely different posture when we realize We're all under God's grace. This is a very different thing. None of us stands over. Each of us stands next to one another in the grace of God. So God is free. God chooses grace. So, as Paul would say in pretty much every passage, get over yourself. It is interesting, and I'll close with this. Romans 9 quotes a lot of scripture. There's like a dozen different uh, scripture verses in here from the Old Testament. And if you read them all in a row in Romans 9, again, it comes off as like really harsh. But if you actually go back and find where they all came from, they actually pretty much all follow this pattern of God is free, but God chooses grace. It's pretty cool. Like you go to this passage, right? I will have mercy on who I will have mercy and I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. Anybody know where that comes from? million dollars to anybody who's got it. Is it Isaiah? No. Exodus 33. This is right after the golden calf incident. God is saying, you know, I might leave Israel behind and I'd be right to do so and I'd start over completely. And this is the I will have mercy on who I will have mercy and I will have compassion on who I will have compassion. And the next thing that happens is God shows Moses his glory and he chooses to stay with Israel and lead them through the wilderness. 
God is free. God chooses grace. The potter and the clay comes from Isaiah, right? It's God is just exasperated with Israel for continuing to rebel for generation and generation. And God says, by all rights, he can, he can let them go. But if you read the book of Isaiah, instead, what does he choose to do? He calls them daughters on on. says, could a mother ever really forget her child? No. And he promises to bring Israel through the exile and back into the land as something new. God is free, but God chooses grace. And Paul quotes Isaiah, right, where Israel is compared to an adulterous woman who deserves to be divorced and left behind. But how does Isaiah conclude? With God calling adulterous Israel his bride. God is free, but God chooses grace. Over and over, this pattern exists in Scripture, which brings us back to Romans 9 to 11. Israel has rebelled against God as an on the outs, and God has every right to leave them behind. But instead, Paul says, All Israel will be saved. And to the Gentiles, Paul says, You're the wild olive shoot grafted in. You're not here because you're awesome. God was under no obligation to come find you. But in his freedom, God chose you. And to us here today, it says the same thing. God can do whatever he wants. And God chose you. God can do whatever he wants. But God chose you. To find out more about Redemption Church, visit redemptionbristol.org.